a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Well, Democrats are upset after Republican senators boycotted a vote to confirm one of President Joe Biden's Federal Reserve nominees. They were accused of not doing their job. Uh, but is that really the case? Or do many people misunderstand the relationship between the president and the legislative branch? To help us break all of that down, we turn to the ultimate inside source, James Walner. He's a senior fellow at the R Street Institute uh, with a focus on governance, separation of powers, Congress, political parties, and the federal policy process. And he joins us on the line now. James, thanks for jumping on today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, of course, the Democrats were very frustrated and upset with the Republican senators uh, for not uh, being there to take a vote on one of the nominees from President Biden on the Federal Reserve and uh, sort of broke down into this uh, do your job mantra. Uh, Tell us just a little bit, where do we get that right? Where do we get that wrong in terms of the relationship between the Senate and the, uh, the White House? Well, the first thing your listeners need to understand is that the Constitution divides the power to uh, to appoint people to the executive branch and to the federal judiciary between the president and the Senate. The president gets to nominate justices uh, and judges of the federal judiciary, and the president gets to nominate people to serve in um, high-ranking uh, positions in the federal government. But the Senate has to confirm them, and the Senate gets to decide how it wants to confirm them and whether or not it will even consider their nominations in the first place. And so it's not the Senate's job to do the president's bidding here. The Senate has independent authority to decide how it wants to exercise its power. So as as you look at that, a lot of people kind of fall back to the advise and consent uh, portion of that confirmation process of, oh, the Senate's just supposed to be sort of this rubber stamp and give great deference to uh, to presidents of either political party uh, on their nominees, whether that's to the to the court or whether that's to the Federal Reserve or, or any other agency. Uh, how should that actually play out? How should we view that? Well, the first or the second thing here is that the Senate has the authority to determine its own rules of proceedings. The Constitution is very clear about that. Only the Senate gets to decide what the Senate rules will be. And as far as deference to the president goes, the separation of powers is something that helps to preserve and prevent uh, preserve our democratic republic and prevent absolute government from taking hold in this nation. And one of the aspects of that is the Senate's role in the confirmation process, because while the president is the head of the executive branch, we can think back to King George III. We can think back to the English crown and how the crown used an absolute power of appointment to basically bribe members of parliament to foster corruption at the highest levels of the British government. And that was something that the federal, uh, that are the patriots, the framers of the Constitution and the men and and women who declared, you know, independence and helped to make it a reality were very well aware of. And they were, and they acknowledged this during debates over the Constitution, during debates over the ratifying conventions, over whether or not we're going to ratify this Constitution and the practice of this government up until quite frankly, very recently, has been that the Senate has an independent role here and doesn't owe 
the president a constitutional deference. Uh, so one of the things that you uh, put in a, in a great article on R Street, uh, talking about how uh, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 67 uh, talked about the very situation we are in with an equally divided Senate. Of course, uh, in most of the legislative votes, the vice president gets to come in and cast the deciding vote. Uh, but that's uh, not quite so clear in terms of, of these appointments. Well, the, the vice president gets to cast votes whenever the Senate is tied, whenever there is a tie, whenever the Senate is divided. And uh, Hamilton in Federal 67 says that the, when the Senate is divided, there can be no nomination. And because of that, and because the vice president gets to, to, to break the vote, that means that the Senate, that he must be referring to other stages in the, in the, in the legislative process, in the confirmation process. And to be, you know, you know, Vice President Mike Pence most recently voted to break a tie on the, on the education secretary uh, DeVos's nomination uh, during the Trump administration. Oh, fascinating. Uh, so the, the ball goes back and forth in terms of who's, <laughs> who's in control, who has power, and, and which side is doing the nominating uh, out of the West Wing. Uh, so as we, as we look at this, and obviously uh, a lot of this will point towards things that are, are clearly coming up in terms of a Supreme Court nomination, uh, but how should we be looking at all of these nominations in terms of the, the role of the, the presidency and the executive branch and, and the, uh, the Congress? Our system was set up to thrive on disagreement, debate, and conflict. This is ambition counteracting ambition. And a debate over nominees isn't the end of the world. In fact, it raises the issue to the American people's uh, notice. It brings more people into the process, and it helps to prevent, on average, bad people or people that aren't qualified from gaining office. And it helps to ensure that the best people do ultimately uh, win office and get appointed to office. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be running from conflict in our system, whether that be in a legislative debate or in a judicial confirmation process for a Supreme Court justice, for instance, or even for someone to sit on the Federal Reserve Board. And I would be and I would encourage your listeners to to be on guard against people that tell us that certain things have to happen a certain way. And what they're ultimately saying is we want this outcome. And any process that leads to that outcome is good, and any process that doesn't lead to that outcome is bad. And that's not a free government, and that's not the way our democratic republic was set up to operate under the Constitution. Yeah, and that is one of the things that we've seen in in a lot of statements of late, that it, it is uh, – as long as the outcome works to your favor, then then the process is great. <laughs> if it doesn't, uh, then and, – and in some cases, they're even saying you should say that this is, is not legitimate if you don't get the outcome uh, that you deserve. And so how do we – how do we make sure I'm, I'm not even sure members of Congress uh, completely understand what the proper role of government is or, or how these rules have, have been established? Uh, what do we have to do to get to that point where we can say, OK, we the people get it so that we're informed, we understand the process. We also got to make sure those that are actually in the Congress and in the executive branch uh, understand that as well. Well, the first thing on that front is that we have to quit thinking about the Congress as a factory. It's not building widgets. It's a place where people go to participate in an activity on our behalf. And we have to expect our elected officials to actually follow through on their commitments 
we can't expect them to guarantee a victory because, after all, this isn't a dictatorship. This isn't an absolute government. But what we can expect and what I think most Americans across the political spectrum do reasonably expect is that when someone asks for their vote and says that they're going to do X, that we can then look to Capitol Hill and see them do X instead of see them blame someone else for why they aren't doing X. Our members aren't victims. They're not powerless. And we should expect them to participate in the process. And if they don't participate in the process, then we should find members who can and will do that. And we should reward and punish uh, the members of Congress for doing things that 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 we want them to do. And then everything else falls into place. That's how this country has worked for a very long time. That's been the secret to American exceptionalism up until now. And so all of a sudden, the Congress is just a bunch of you know victims. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And you know, it's ironic. The last thing I'll say on this is that the second we think that the Congress is a factory, the moment in our history when that shift happens is actually when the Congress is at its least productive it's ever been. Yeah. And so that should tell us that this doesn't work. If you want to do big things, then look back to big debates of the past and see that debates and amendments and disagreement and conflict and deliberation produce compromise, not the absence of those things. Uh, fantastic. James Wallner from R Street. Uh, always appreciate your perspective. This is a crucial conversation. We're going to continue it. We'll step aside for top of the hour news. Much more to come in hour number two in Inside Sources. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.